Well, good morning again, and welcome to this gathering of Hope Community Church. So glad you are here. Let's, uh, let's pray together as we approach God's holy word. Our great and glorious God, grant us this morning an open ear and a willing heart that we might hear you calling us to a higher endeavor. We are sometimes too easily satisfied with the various attractions in this life. We want to hear your voice. We want to hear your voice in your word that we might be willing servants, eager to do your will. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to John chapter 12. If you could get there, John chapter 12. Want to prepare our thoughts for that great passage of Scripture with this. Some of the stories that come out of the mission field are so clear and compelling, we need to tell them with repetition so that these stories will have their due impact in our lives. Inspiration and motivation, I think, comes from the stories of the mission field. Not everyone lives this way, but some do. The story of Jim Elliott is an amazing story of unwavering courage and absolute faithfulness to, to God. Jim was a standout in college, both academically and, and athletically, and he received opportunity after opportunity to do this, that, and the other thing, and he had a variety of opportunities ahead of him. But as education continued for Jim, he sensed God's call to push into the darkness and to proclaim Jesus Christ where Jesus Christ had never been heard before. This took a number of years, but he prepared himself by learning another language and a dialect after that language, and he moved to uh, the country of Ecuador. Uh, he had married, moved to Ecuador, and, and was preparing himself with some other missionaries. And his goal, his desire in life, was to proclaim Jesus Christ among the Alca Indians who had never heard of Jesus Christ before. In fact, they were hostile to all foreigners, all outsiders. So Jim Elliott, along with four other missionaries, began to make contact with them after uh, they'd moved there, learned the language, and tried to assimilate as best they could into the area. And they, they discovered, one of their missionaries discovered that if he flew in a very tight circle... They could lower a, a basket with a rope, and that basket would be almost without much movement. Plane would be circling overhead, and the basket descended upon this tribal area, barely moving around, and they, they had gifts and such in the baskets. And they did that several times, and they actually received gifts back to them in the basket. And so they, they began to make one-on-one -on -one contact with uh, this tribe and had friendly interactions with them. And so they moved into the area with a group of people to talk to um, the tribe that they thought they had be befriended. But on January 8th, 1956, Jim Elliott and four other missionaries were attacked and, and killed by the tribe that they came to reach. Their names were Jim Elliott, uh, Nate Saint, Ed McCauley, Peter Fleming, and Roger Udarian. Jim Elliott's life uh, and purpose in, in pursuit of this was memorialized as people, um, well, his wife primarily, sifted through his journals and found this entry 
1949, he had written this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. The story of Jim Elliot impacted both the Christian and the non-Christian world. Life magazine published a 10-page article on Jim Elliot and his missionary colleagues and their attempt to reach the Alka Indians. Elizabeth Elliot, the, the widower, the, excuse me, the widow now, published two books describing this great endeavor. And Elizabeth, as well as another widow, Rachel Saint, the wife of the pilot, uh, moved into that area and literally reached hundreds of Alka Indians with the gospel. Young people all over the world heard of this story and were so moved by the commitment and, and the lofty endeavor of Jim and the four missionaries. They were not deterred from the mission field. People went to the mission field because of the story that they heard. They wanted to join in as best as they could to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ where it had never been heard before. So here again is this phrase from Jim Elliot. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. It looks to me that Jim Elliot may have been influenced by John chapter 12 because there's a statement in there that's very, not extremely close as in verbatim, but you'll, you'll catch the, the flavor of this. Jesus said, anyone who loves their life will lose it, but while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. I'm going to read the entire section of, uh, well, it's just a paragraph or two, not the entire chapter, but I want to read the section now. And I would like for you to listen for the call that God the Father placed on Jesus and the call that Jesus Christ places on his followers. I'm going to start reading with verse 20 and read down to verse 26 of John chapter 12. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast, and that would be the feast of Passover, talk about that in a moment. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates this life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My Father will honor the one who serves me." My aim this morning is to show you from the Gospel of John, chapter 12, the high call that Jesus has put on your life. It's easy to read this passage of Scripture and think it applies only to Jesus, but actually he's talking about us and the call that he places on our lives. Now, before I can show you the call that Jesus places on your life, I need to show you the call that God the Father has placed on the Son of God, and uh, we need to expand the context of that just a little bit. A great way to understand John chapter 12 is to have read John chapter 11, and I told you it was my intention to save that for Easter Sunday, so we did not go through that in some detail. 
want to give you a synopsis of John chapter 11. Jesus raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. Now, you know that there were, uh, because I've t- told you, we, you, as you remember, there are seven miraculous signs recorded in the Gospel of John. So Jesus certainly did more than that, much more than that, and John even admitted that at the end of his uh, Gospel record. But there are seven signs that are recorded. The last two were the strongest signs, and the last one being the resurrection of Lazarus. Jesus saved this for just about the very end of his life. He, he's about a week away, 10 days away from going to the cross, and we know in, in the Gospel of John chapter 12, he's just days away. But a little, let's say it's 10 days away from the, the cross. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, an irrefutable sign of doing something that only God can do and being able to claim something that God, only God can claim. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus said in John chapter 11. As a result of, of the accumulation of signs and their effect on people, there are a lot of people who want to see Jesus and want to be around him, want to hear him teach, probably even ask, could you heal my friend or my brother? A lot of people who are not Jewish are very interested in getting around Jesus. Literally, people all over the world. We learned when we, when we uh, just op- read the opening phrase in, in John chapter 12, six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus was raised. So the Passover, you need to understand, more than doubled the population of Jerusalem. Probably triple or more. So there's three or four times as many people as normal in Passover. These are literally Jewish pilgrims who have come from all over the world to be close proximity to the temple at Passover. There's also some Gentiles who have come from all over the world because there are Gentiles that, that, that believe in the, 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 the God of the Jewish way. We call them God-fearers. And there was actually, in, in the court system of, of the temple, there was a court of Gentiles. They could actually go and be close proximity to the, the sacrificial system that would win their uh, forgiveness to God. And so there's literally people all over the world who have come to Jerusalem at this point in time. And then there's these signs. A a man who's blind at birth has been healed. He's been given sight. A man who's been dead four days has been given life. Only God can do these things. We've got to go see this miracle worker. We've got to go see Jesus. And so there's this clamoring of attention for Jesus Christ. Let's pick it up with verse 17 of John chapter 12. Just back up a, a, a couple of sentences from our passage today, and let's read with us. Now the crowd that was with him, with Jesus, when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. And so the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now, I've read the phrase, uh, this is getting us nowhere. You might have in your translation, we are gaining nothing, or you are gaining nothing. That's a reference to letting Jesus live. We know in the Gospel of John that there have been four occasions where they've attempted to seize Jesus in order to take his life. At no occasion were they even close because his time had not yet come, we were told. 
But at this point in time, they, they do desire to get Jesus out of the way, and, and, and yet instead Jesus lives. And so the comment is, see, this is getting us nothing. Letting, us Jesus, letting Jesus live gains us nothing from the perspective of the religious leadership. We've got to get him out of the way. But there's also this comment about the whole world. Did you check that? Did you notice that in verse 19? This is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. That's not literally every single person in the entire world, but all kinds of people from all over the world have had their attention drawn to the person of Jesus Christ. These are Jews and non-Jews in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. There had been a strong separation between Jews and Gentiles, but Jesus comes and doesn't seem to mind the difference between the two categories of people. So there are two things that really bother the religious leadership at this particular time. The amount of people that are interested in Jesus, but then also the type of people that are interested in Jesus. I think this reference to the whole world in John chapter 12, verse 19, is also there for another reason. In addition to helping us understand the tension between the religious leadership and Jesus, John reminds us of God's heart for the nations. The Jews had lost track of that over the years. God has always had a heart for the nations. And so that statement, the whole world has gone after him, is exaggerated to take advantage of the tool of irony. The Jews angrily acknowledge what in the eyes of God is good. In their minds, this should not be happening. There should not be a mix of Jew and Gentile, poor and uneducated, as well as the rich and the educated. We shouldn't mix categories of people. They think that's bad. And ironically, John places it in such a way that we understand, oh, that's good. It's not the first time that John has used irony. Let's, let's just turn back a page to John chapter 11, and I'll show you what this means, what this looks like, in a, in a very clear and compelling way. John chapter 11, verse 45. I'm just going to pick it up in the middle of a, of a story here and start reading. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary... And had seen what Jesus did, the raising of Lazarus, put their faith in him, in Jesus. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin, the uh, ruling body. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miracles, Many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation should perish. Verse 51, he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied 
or predicted, that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for the nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. It's ironic that Caiaphas, the high priest, says it's better for one man to die for a nation. And, and he said this with self, selfish motives. And yet that's exactly what happened. Jesus surrendered his life with very unselfish motives to die not just for a nation, but the world, which certainly included that nation. So the time has come for Jesus to die, and he knows it. Again, they've tried to take him captive. They've tried to seize him, literally, but they could not. And we were told in the Gospel of John, because his hour had not yet come, and now he tells us that his hour has come. Verse 23. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. When Jesus says the hour has come, that means all the horrific events of the crucifixion, the betrayal and the arrest and the beating, the shame put on Jesus in a public way, the crucifixion, the agony of the cross, plus the other side of that, the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. All of that is one package which will bring glory to God the Father. All of that is one event in the mindset of Jesus Christ. It's not like the death and resurrection are separate events, as if the death of Jesus Christ was somehow accidental and God fixed it with the resurrection. It's all the same event, part of the same event, all part of the same package. Now, this is a theological reason why Jesus embraced death. This is why Jesus was willing to die. The death of Jesus Christ will bear fruit. It will create opportunities for people to come to God in a saving relationship through the person of Jesus Christ. This offer of life to people, undeserving as they are, this gracious and merciful and just offer of life will bring glory to God to the Father who designed this plan and sent his son to enact this plan. That means the death of Jesus was entirely sacrificial, voluntary, and intentional. No part of that was an accident. No part of that was the schemes of bad people taking advantage of a very good man. John chapter 12, verse 24, let's read on. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, there remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Now that may sound to you like Jesus is just giving some kind of a kingdom principle. This applies to anybody who gives up their life. They're going to bear fruit. In fact, the only way you can bear fruit is if you die in the ground. But I'll suggest to you that Jesus is not giving a kingdom principle that applies to anybody at all times, at all places. He's talking about himself. The context is, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, and immediately he jumps into this, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. This is a figure of speech. This is a truth told in parable 
form. The hour has come for one person, and that one person will surrender his life. It will not be taken from him. It will be surrendered as a gift. The death of Jesus will be effective. It will bear fruit. And that means there is no possible way for the atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross to not save people. If you are a Christian in this room in the year 2024, you are part of the fruit that Jesus talked about. When he died and that seed died in the ground as he's talking in parable form, it produces many seeds. You're, you're it. You're part of it. Part of what Jesus talked about. Now watch as he changes subjects. So that's the call of God the Father on Jesus Christ. Surrender your life. But now in verse 25, Jesus changes the subject. Now he begins talking in more general terms, and that includes everyone in this room. This is the call that Jesus Christ has placed upon his followers. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you're going to want to know this because this is the call that Jesus Christ has put on your life. Verse 25. The man who loves his life, well, if, I should say it this way. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. It helps to give attention right away to the important qualifier in this love-hate tension of how we are to live. It serves as a contrast. Do you see toward the end of verse 25, it says, anyone who hates their life in this world, that's the qualifier I want you to see, in this world, it's in contrast to eternity. Life in this world is being contrasted with life eternal. Life in this world has eternal meaning, but if and only if you give your life to Jesus Christ, follow him all the way through to eternity. This is counterintuitive for us because we are designed by God to love people, to appreciate beauty, and to enjoy experiences of, in life. But then also internally, God has put something else in our hearts that sends us craving him and longing him and wanting, wanting only what he can give so that we're really we're only satisfied with the person of Jesus Christ. For decades now, um, people have been inspired by the life and death of Jim Elliott, the missionary, and his missionary colleagues. Those five missionaries, though, were inspired first by Jesus Christ who surrendered their life, who surrendered his life to, to the Father. And then those five missionaries surrendered their lives to the will, to the obedience, to the following of Jesus Christ. To hate your life in this world does not mean, does not mean that you have a desire to harm yourself or to end your life. But it does mean that you live your life as a follower of Jesus Christ. Here's what this, this, um, here's what this might look like. To hate your life in this world is to not fear death. To hate your life in this world is to experience a freedom to risk your life for the sake of the, of the gospel. 
not a random risk, but a calculated risk. It's to realize that you are serving Jesus Christ as king. And as a servant or a slave, you don't get to tell the king what to do. It's to be a glad servant of the king. To hate your life in this world is to realize that you can love like Jesus loved. You can live like Jesus lived. You can be a glad servant of the king. To hate your life in this world is to find something more beautiful, more secure, more lasting, more enjoyable in Christ than in this world. Sort of got a missionary theme going this morning, so to run with that just a bit more, here's another example of a detachment from this life in order to form a strong attachment to the cause of Jesus Christ. Young people, would you be willing to pray that God would send you to a place far away so that you can proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to a people group that is yet to hear about Jesus Christ? We can make that even harder. Young parents, would you be willing to think about being willing to pray that your sons and your daughters would be so captured by the cause of Jesus Christ that they would travel to a land far away from here in order to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who have never heard? The call that Jesus has placed on all of us is a discipleship call that Jesus gives to everyone who follows him. You might think that this call was extended to only a few, but it's to everyone. Verse 25 begins with anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it. Verse 26, whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. Whoever, anyone, that's all of us. All of us who follow Jesus Christ. Here's a hard question for evaluation. Does your measure of commitment to Jesus Christ inspire people to be equally committed in their relationship with Jesus Christ? We're going to be challenged with this, probably for the rest of our lives. I'm challenged by this to this day. You might experience some tension right now, or as you reflect on this later on during the week, you might experience some tension between wanting and delighting your life and delighting in the things of this world, and yet giving no regard to, this thing, to the things of this world as the ultimate source of your comfort, your security, your joy, your meaning, your purpose, your significance. You're going to understand, you, in order to appreciate the tension and to, to deal with it properly, you need to understand where that tension comes from. 
I mentioned earlier that God has placed in our hearts this desire that we have to enjoy people and to appreciate beauty and to, uh, to cherish experiences. But you know what else God has placed in our hearts at the very same time? According to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, God has set eternity in the hearts of people. We all intuitively know that there's more to life than you live and you die and that's it. Where did that knowledge come from? Where did that awareness come from that there's life beyond the grave? We've never gone out there to prove it for ourselves. We've never been able to sample it. Where did that come from? God has set eternity in the hearts of people so that they would go looking for him. Eternity in the hearts of people, not in a literal sense, but in the real sense. God has set eternity in our hearts so that we might find meaning with him. There are some questions that resonate across cultures and across countries and across customs. Questions like these. Have you ever wondered about the meaning of life? Do you think much about what will happen when you die? Would you like to know that your life matters? Everyone should keep in mind John chapter 12, verse 25. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternity. One reason God has placed eternity in the hearts of people is that they will go looking for eternal life in a relationship with him, that they might answer God's call to know God and to make Jesus known. The dissatisfaction with life within the hearts of people is there at least in part by God's design. Here's what it looks like to an old guy who doesn't know a whole lot of things. To have eternity placed in your heart and yet to love this world more than eternity is to have a misplaced love in your life. In other words, you would not be loving what God has designed you to love. To call that, the, the call that God the Father placed on the Son of God was surrender. And the call that Jesus Christ has placed on all who follow him is surrender. When you surrender, you win. So how do we go about this? You're awfully quiet. So I take it that you're processing and taking this in. What in the world can you do on a daily basis that could somehow line you up just a bit better maybe a bit deeper with Jesus Christ and his purposes for your life I'm going to go again with getting the word of God reading the Bible saved my life quite literally I came to Christ reading the Bible and on a daily basis uh, I am who I am because I read the word of God and and I picked up this this book uh, a number of years ago well some time ago just this little tiny yellow book called before you open your Bible I've given it I think to almost every guy in the congregation that I could I've got a few more, and I'll give one to you if you'll commit to read it and see me after the service. I'm just going to read to you a paragraph of this. Uh, This book takes as an example of how we can pray Scripture back to God. It's going to walk you through a number of uh, uh, passages from the book of Psalms. Here's just one from Psalm 119, verse 36. Incline my heart 
to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. And the commentary that he writes in here about that particular psalm is, this is not a flattering request. It assumes our hearts are bent in the wrong direction, away from what gives life. It's not that we dislike our Bibles, it's just that other things loom larger. Our wish lists seem more enticing, our to-do lists more pressing. Most mornings, for example, my mind goes immediately to one of three places. What do I have planned for today? What am I going to eat for breakfast? What's happening on social media? Questions like these are not terrible, but they are telling. They expose the natural bent of my heart. They reveal that while it's effort, effortless to be mindful of self, I have to work to be mindful of God. What I'm asking you to do this morning in response to the call of Jesus Christ in your life is be mindful of God. Be more mindful of God than you presently are. We talk about a lot of things in our conversations. Why not make it your habit to have conversations that include the topic of Jesus Christ and what he has done for you? Just include that quite naturally in your conversations. That's like practice witnessing to the non-believer. Get so used to and so comfortable with talking about spiritual things with your brothers and sisters in Christ that it just sort of spills out quite naturally with those that you know don't yet know Jesus Christ. And you'll feel natural about that. I hope you will love God supremely by following Jesus Christ passionately. Let's pray together. Lord, I started this morning, um, this morning's teaching time but ask, by asking that you'd open our ears to hear what you have to say and open our hearts to be willing to receive what you have for us in your word. I pray that you'd bring that home now. That we might be followers of Jesus Christ, not reckless, but deliberate, intentional, prioritized. That the things of this world that so easily capture our attention would fade in comparison to the beauty that we find in Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for the richness of our lives. We have been enriched by people, by experiences, by possessions, by books, by any number of things. We thank you for that, for allowing our lives to cross paths with those things that enrich us. But let us never be satisfied with your blessings. We want to be most satisfied by you, the giver of those blessings that we so eagerly and joyfully have received. Help us, dear God, to answer the call to follow you at all times, in all places, and all occasions. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.